What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Introduction of Idols. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Idols by William John Locke. Introduction. Proem. Two men once issued from the darkness and broke into a house. They came for robbery, but finding an old man asleep in a chair, they murdered him. Then, terrified at their deed, they fled almost empty-handed and so vanished into the night. Long afterwards they were overtaken by justice, confessed to their crime, and paid the penalty. Their sordid story is set down in the newspapers of the time. Otherwise they might have passed into oblivion, and no man concerns himself with the dismal working of their souls. Their existence would not have found a mention here, were it not that the blow they dealt was the cause of convulsions in other lives. For under the outer seeming of harmonious days and gentle living often lies a smouldering train of devastating forces, stifled passions of greed and lust and jealousy, splendid heroisms and enthusiasms that burn white. In the common way of life no match is set, which forms a trite moral for the elegist. But now and then the way of life is lit with lurid suddenness, and the mine is sprung. Beneath the surface of four gentle lives such a train was smouldering. The vulgar crime of the two nameless abjects set it ablaze. And they, issuing from the darkness for one ghastly moment, were but blind, almost impersonal instruments of destiny, so far as they concerned these four. End of Introduction Chapter One of Idols by William John Locke this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter One It was Irene Merriam's hour of greatest content when she looked into her heart for a fugitive desire and smiled at finding none. And this was a source of all the more comfort because she was a woman who gave unsparingly of herself to life and made large claims upon life in return. She sat in a leathern armchair by the fireplace, listening to the talk of her two companions, who were sitting by the dinner-table over their coffee. Now and then she interposed a remark, but lazily, preferring to watch the play of expression on their faces, to dream dreams about them, and to realise her own happiness. This after-dinner scene was a familiar one. Familiarity had made it dearer. She had grown to regard it as an essential in her scheme of life, like sleep and food. And Raymond. Of the two men, one was her husband, Gerard Merriam, the other his lifelong intimate friend. They had chummed together at school, at the university, had joined the same inn of court, 
and have been called to the bar together, and in spite of wide divergence of taste and character, had remained in close relationship to the present day. It was on the homeward voyage, after a long vacation trip to India, that they had met Irene, a lonely girl returning from the grave of a father whose deathbed she had gone out too late to witness. Both men fell in love with her. The rivalry becoming mutually obvious, each gave the other a fair field. The wooing continued in London, till success fell upon Gerard. On his meeting with Irene after her marriage, the other, Hugh Coleman, bowed low over her hand, kissed it, and put a loyal friendship at her service. A proud bearing, emphasised by steel-blue eyes and a supercilious upsweep of a heavy auburn moustache, gave distinction to the action. He had rather a courtly way of doing things. The tears started to her eyes. She had been greatly drawn to him before, and pitied him out of her girlish heart for having lost in his rivalry. But from that moment she loved him with a pure friendship, and made it a dear object of her life to intensify the brotherly affection between the two men. In fact, she had raised her conception of this Orestes and Pylades relationship to a kind of cult, of which she herself was the devoted and impassioned priestess. During the six years of her married life, Hugh had dined with them at least once a week. Lately he had taken a flat in their immediate neighbourhood, and his visits had grown more frequent. Gerard, being a man of few words, had not said much to evince his gratification, but Irene had sounded the note of welcome loud enough for the two. As she lay back in her chair watching them, a spice of admiration flavoured her thoughts. Both were men of fine physique. Gerard was six feet two, of huge frame, with deep sloping shoulders indicative of great strength. Hugh, of somewhat slighter build, better proportioned, holding his head erect on square shoulders. Finer, too, of face than Gerard, who had heavy features, eyes of uncertain blue, and a reddish moustache cut short at the ends. The one face gave the impression of a man proudly scornful, quick in quarrel, with a Celtic strain of sensitiveness. The other, that of a man slow in method, determined of purpose, shy of demonstration, one suggesting rather than revealing strength, a dangerous face to trust. Of the two, he was preeminently the man more likely on first sight to win a woman's heart in a joint contest. Even Gerard himself had wondered at his success. When he questioned his wife, she answered, lifting glorious eyes of faith, "'Because you are you.' And that was an end of the matter. But perhaps it was the suggestion of reserved strength in the man that had influenced her from the first in his favour, and an intuition, such as so many women have trusted, like a divine revelation, that in a great crisis of life the one would be living rock, and the other shifting sand. A pause in the talk gradually lingered into silence. Gerard, at the head of the table, near Irene, manipulated his pipe, which had become choked and would not draw. Hugh, at the side, half turning towards the fire, leaned back in his chair, and with hands clasped behind his head, stared at the ceiling. Irene suddenly spoke. "'How are the hearts?' Hugh started into a more normal posture. "'The hearts? They flourish. Have you ever heard of a Jew money-lender who didn't?' There was an unwonted touch of acerbity in his tone that brought a quick glance from Irene. "'They're not both money-lenders,' she remarked. "'Oh, Minna, she's right enough.' "'I'm sorry for the poor girl,' said Irene. 
I wish she would let me be a friend to her, but she won't. I wonder why. What do you want to worry about her for? asked her husband, between the whiffs of her newly regulated pipe. I pity her so. Some people don't like being pitied. I don't. But you are not a pretty girl cut by society, insisted Irene. Mm, she's proud, you know, said Hugh. He might have adduced a reason much nearer home. As it was, he gave a hint of it. The moon, Irene, pale as a matter of course before the sun. But it's an open question whether the moon likes it. You're talking rubbish, said Irene calmly. Gerard broke into a laugh. Anyway, I'm glad she hasn't cottoned to you. I don't like Jews about the place. To your tent, so Israel. Irene flashed up. You can't object to the poor girl just because she's a Jewish. Of course not, my dear, replied her husband, with a curious change of tone. I was only joking. Irene came behind his chair and put her hand on his shoulder. Forgive me, dear, she said. He nodded and patted the back of her hand magnanimously, then pushed his chair away from the table and rose to his feet, stretching himself after the manner of burly men. I'm off to the smoking-room to make up some trout casts. You two can come when you've finished the discussion. When he had gone, Irene took his vacated seat. The girl seems so lonely. That's why I take an interest in her. Hugh lit a cigarette and replied vaguely. Irene noticed a lack of enthusiasm and attributed it to a lack of interest. There was a short silence. Is anything the matter? she said at last. Why should there be? You're not yourself tonight. You've been working too hard and want a change. Why not go down to Westerners tomorrow with Gerard to fish? Gerard hasn't asked me. As if that were necessary. I'll tell him at once you are going. Oh, no, he laughed. I'm not to be regulated in that fashion. I'm not overworked. I'm as strong as a horse. If you want to know what I was thinking about, I'll tell you, more or less. I remembered it was just six years ago today, when I first saw you after your marriage. She looked meditatively towards the fire, a smile upon her lips. And I had just been thinking how happy these six years had been, and how peaceful and sweet these evenings were, the three of us together. Perhaps I've been selfish. He caught the implication, and broke into protest. You know very well they are the happiest times of my life, he said. Where else could I get what I have here? I sometimes think it would be better for you if you could find a nice woman to give you something better she said, somewhat timorously. "'Oh, don't talk like that, Reenie,' he cried, impetuously throwing his cigarette into the fire. "'The more I see of other women, the more I despair. I see a lot of them. I've been married to half a dozen already by popular rumour. I suppose I shall end one of these days by marrying one in grim earnest. I'm a fool, Reenie, I know. But covert you. My temperament is not that of an anchorite. I know how it will be.' a whirl of the senses, and after that the deluge. And then I'll come back here and sit in this room and wonder how the devil I could have thought of another woman. You've spoiled me for the common run of women. I haven't met one yet that is fit to black your shoes. The man that worships the sun doesn't give his allegiance to a bonfire. But he can warm himself by the bonfire, replied Irene, laughing. Until the thing goes out. Then he's got to light another. But the sun is eternal. She was accustomed to his hyperbole. The woman in her loved the praise. It supplemented Gerard's rare attributes to her worth, 
effectually preventing her from feeling a lack in her husband's lesser demonstrativeness. Again she was enlightened enough to allow relief to overburdened feelings. A man of his type could not love her today and cast her out of his heart tomorrow. She never had a moment's doubt that she was throned there as the love of his life. But a magnanimous scorn of thoughts of disloyalty on his part triumphed supremely over a false position. In Hugh's present outburst, however, she detected some special determining cause. "'I'm a very limited being, my dear Hugh,' she said quickly, "'whatever exaggerations I let you use. But you know how deep my interest in your welfare is, and life could not go wrong with you without causing me, and Gerard, pain and anxiety. That was why I spoke. Whatever it is, I'm sorry.' Sympathy could not have been more delicately conveyed than it was by her tone and look. But there are times when sympathy stings. He remained silent for a moment, then shifted his position, threw back his head, and twirled his great moustache. "'You are everything that is sweet, Reenie,' said he. "'But I was telling you general truths, not posing as a, an homme monkey. "'I hate the idea of fellows that are forever mewing about for women's sympathy. "'It's despicable.' He rose, and with two arms held out, took her hands and raised her from her chair. "'There, don't be hurt. Everything's going on swimmingly, I assure you. The world at my feet and heaven at my fingertips. Let's go to Gerard.' The smoking-room was a nondescript apartment, half-library, half-gun-room, suggestive more of the country squire than the London barrister. Gerard, with a glass of water on a little table by his side, was engaged upon his casts, screwing up his eyes, so as both to avoid the smoke of his pipe and to see the delicate involutions of his knots. He looked up with a nod when his wife and friend entered. Irene turned to a desk to scribble a note. The men's talk turned upon fishing. Weston had killed a two-pound trout the day before. They discussed the chances of a similar prize for Gerard. Then came the question of flies. Gerard waxed learned. Irene, having written her note, and finding herself out of the conversation, took up a book. Gerard's love of sport she indulgently allowed, but in her heart she could not sympathise with it. The willful infliction of pain passed her comprehension. There was so much of it in the world already. She was glad when she became aware of a change of topic, and drew her chair nearer the fire. But Hugh, looking at his watch, rose to depart. Irene protested. "'So early? It's not ten o'clock yet.' There was a touch of dismay in her tone. Gerard, too, bade him sit down again. But he pleaded work. He'd been briefed in a hurry, had not a notion yet of the case which was coming on immediately. They had to let him go, and when he had gone, fell to discussing him, as they had done a thousand times before. Irene idealised and worshipped her husband, but her feelings towards Hugh were composed of conflicting and of somewhat delicate elements. The man's history, mode of life, and diversity of character appealed by turns to her sense of romance, of trust, of protection. He had squandered a pretty patrimony in his early days. A diamond brooch still glittered before the footlights on an oblivious bosom. He had lived open-handedly, benefiting more by his vices than many of the austere do by their virtues. Even now, with modest income at the criminal bar, Small thrift was incomprehensible to him, in spite of Irene's periodic expositions. 
On such occasions she looked serenely down upon him from immeasurable heights. But in this man of so many simplicities seemed to lie a baffling fund of reserve, which both compelled her respect and kept her intellectual interest in him upon the alert. The paradox fascinated her, especially in its extension to achievement. For with a habit of glowing speech he combined severe literary taste. A reputation of some standing had been made, and was upheld by poems wrought with crystalline coldness. On the other hand, a recent and sudden opening at the bar was chiefly due to tempestuous advocacy. "'You seem to be worrying your head over everybody to-night,' said Gerard at last. First it was Israel Hart's daughter, and now it's Hugh. Whence this violent attack of altruism?' "'I have everything that life can give me, and I should like others to have the same. Now, there's something wrong with Hugh.' "'There always is. A man can't have the temperament of an Ajax and expect to go through life smoothly.' "'His friends can help him,' said Irene. "'My dear good Reenie,' said Gerard, slipping the last cast into his fly-book, which he strapped deliberately, "'if there's one cry bitterer than another that goes up to heaven, it is, "'Save us from our friends.'" End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 2 the Merriams lived in a comfortable detached house on Sunnington Heath, most convenient and pleasant of London suburbs. A year or so before they had persuaded Hugh Coleman to leave his somewhat dismal chambers in the temple, and take a flat in a block of red-brick mansions that had just arisen to glorify the end of the high street of Sunnington proper. Irene, with a woman's eye to economy, had picked out for him a commodious little set on the fourth floor. But Hugh put aside her choice and rented a sumptuous flat lower down, which he furnished in expensive style. When Irene reproved him, he laughed with a grand signorial wave of the hand. His pigsty and husk days were over. He was going to take advantage of the fatted calves and other resources of rehabilitated prodigals. Was not his income going up by leaps and bounds? Besides, there was his uncle, Geoffrey Coleman, of Bradfield Park. He had more than expectations. Irene lectured him on the vanity of human expectations. "'Your uncle may marry again and have a family,' she said sagely. Hugh snapped his fingers. It would be indecent. Geoffrey Coleman had ever been the correctest of livers. He dressed for his solitary dinner every night of his life on account of his butler. His marriage would convulse a whole neighbourhood. He would just as soon think of throwing a nitroglycerine bomb into the parish church. Irene yielded with a pitying shrug of the shoulders. She had not lived six and twenty years for nothing. She knew that in every man lurked something of Voltaire's droll of a habicock. About eighteen months later her prognostications were fulfilled. Geoffrey Coleman showed himself capable of anything by marrying a young wife. Quite recent rumours hinted at the probable arrival of an heir. All Hugh's expectations came to a ghastly end. Irene sympathised with him made elaborate calculations as to means for reducing his expenditure. He listened with pathetic aberration. She had a regal way of taking impossible things for granted, acquiesced silently in her schemes, and then went out and cursed himself. Tonight, after leaving the Merriams, he walked along in the same self-reproaching temper. 
The March wind, coming keenly across the heath, blew a small drizzle into his face, causing him to pull up his coat-collar and step out briskly. He swung his stick with an irritation which, however, had nothing to do with the weather. If only the past had been different, if only Irene had loved him instead of Gerard. He would have husbanded his life, instead of playing ducks and drakes with it as he was doing. What business had he along this road? Had he not better retrace his steps past the Merriam's house and go to his own study fire and his imaginary brief? Suddenly he uttered an exclamation of impatience, drew himself up, and called himself a fool. A familiar recklessness of mood gained gradual hold upon him. He laughed, gratified at the possession of a sense of humour that could look mockingly upon the portentous seriousness of this ridiculous world. He turned his thoughts to the cases he had in hand, went off at a tangent to the points he had made in an emotional address to the jury the day before. The success was sweet, sweeter because he was conscious that the secret of it lay within himself. He had the gift of elegant speech, pathos, persuasion, invective. It had brought him suddenly, when his chance came, from the obscurest ranks of the junior bar, into public light. A pittance had leaped into a competence, which in its turn might rise to the dignity of an income. His temperament had done for him, a young and struggling man, what legal learning and acumen had not done for hundreds many years his senior. When he realised this, he felt grateful to his temperament, and granted it indulgence for the many scurvy tricks it had played him. Accordingly, he was fairly satisfied with himself, when, after a quarter of an hour's walk, he opened the garden gate of a large house standing in its own grounds. He walked up the drive, humming an air. He rang, was admitted, inducted across a luxuriously carpeted hall, up a broad staircase, into the drawing-room. "'Mr. Coleman, miss?' The servant withdrew and shut the door. A girl rose from a low chair by the fire and advanced with quick steps to meet him. "'Oh, how late you are! No, you couldn't help it. You told me. But the evening has been so long waiting for you.' "'I got away as soon as I could. You see, I had promised. If your note had come yesterday, instead of this morning—' "'I only knew last night that father was going out of town. It seemed too good a chance of having you all to myself. Oh, I am so glad you've come. It was good of you.' "'By no means,' he said with a mock bow. "'Don't you think it's a pleasure I've been looking forward to all day long?' "'I don't, if you express yourself in that sarcastic way,' she answered, reseating herself. Her voice was deep and rich, and she affected a lazy utterance, half aware that it might warm the blood of the man she was addressing. It did. He had been irritably conscious of its seductiveness in Irene's dining-room, of the seductiveness, too, of her sensuous grace that had first caught his imagination. "'You are a witch, Minna,' he said admiringly. The echo in his ear of the threadbare commonplace sounded an ironical note. It pleased the girl, however. "'I've been longing for a little compliment for a week.' "'Why, I saw you the day before yesterday.' "'Cela n'empêche pas.' "'Did I behave badly to you?' "'No, but I might just as well have been selling you postage stamps behind a counter.' "'Forgive me, but you see, we met in the street.' "'You were ashamed of being seen with me, I suppose.' Minna he explained, flushing into quick earnest. She laughed softly. "'I thought I should get something genuine out of you. You walked into the trap beautifully. Do you like my new tea-gown? I had it made because you admired one something like it in a shop-window.' 
She rose and stood before him. She was undeniably beautiful, with warm southern beauty. From her mother, long since dead, whom chance had brought from Smyrna to the tender keeping of Israel Hart and the fogs of London, she inherited the languor of expression that was her charm. Yet her features, more mutinous than regular, bore little or no trace of the Jewess. None, save that almost imperceptible strange contour of flesh beneath the eyes, from cheekbone to cheekbone, which is the eternal mark of her race. The soft crepon of the garment clung to her figure, showing its young and supple curves. Its pale yellow shade heightened the richness of her colouring. Hugh expressed unreserved admiration. He had the power of a nice extravagance in praise. The glow deepened on the girl's face, and her eyes lit with gratification. After a quick glance at herself in the mirror of the overmantel, she sat down again. Her heart had thirsted for his homage, and had drunk it in greedily. "'Now tell me all that you've seen and done lately,' she said. An easy task. He'd seen no one lovelier than herself. He had sketched her portrait on brief paper to bring a breath of sweetness into the evil-smelling court. He had the scrap in his letter-case. Minna took possession of it, burst into roulades of delighted thanks. He laughed, compared her murmurings to the low notes of the nightingale. The matter threshed out, Minna reverted to her original demand. He complied, touched on the gossip of the day, spoke lightly of his forthcoming volume of poems. Would he write a poem to her? He tried to explain the severity of his style. Not flesh and blood. Perhaps on the tea-gown. Thus the talk was brought round again to the bewitching garment. "'And this creation was ready to please me?' he asked. "'It's a godsend to have someone to think of pleasing,' she cried with sudden petulance. "'Whom have I else? Papa and Papa's friends? They never look at me unless I put on something barbaric, gold and silver and precious stones. Then they can reckon me up in pounds, shillings, and pence. One grows weary of dressing for one's own pleasure. Life gets on one's nerves like a chapter out of the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't suppose you ever feel like that, because you're a man.' "'I wish I could make life less lonely for you,' he said kindly. "'I wish you could.' "'Why do you keep Mrs. Merriam so at arm's length? "'She would do a great deal for you if you would let her.' "'I can't,' said the girl. "'I don't know why. "'Why do you think so much of her?' "'Because she is the finest woman I know.' "'Or simply because—' she checked herself. "'No, I didn't mean that, but—' "'But what?' "'Oh, can't you guess? "'I want you to estimate me a little by myself, "'not measure me by a standard, as you do. "'There.' She leant forward, with one hand drooping over her knee, and looked up at him with moist eyes, and behind the moisture burned the longing folly of a woman. "'I don't want anybody else to please. You are enough for me. All the world.' Hugh had come prepared. Her sensuous charm had long woven itself around him. He had long known that a touch from him could awaken slumbering volcanoes, that in a moment of madness he would one day give that touch. Even now his pulses beat fast. He was flesh and blood, though his verse was marble. Yet he kept a curb upon himself. He reached out his hand and took her fingers. "'You mustn't look at me like that. I am not a bad man. But you will make me say things both of us may be sorry for.' "'I don't care,' she whispered. "'Say anything.' 
the moment had come. In a fraction of a second he could have her youth throbbing in his arms. With an effort of will he threw back her hand and started to his feet. She shrank away, frightened. "'Listen, Minna, before we make fools of ourselves. Where is this going to end? Have you thought of it? Use your intelligence instead of your passions. I am speaking brutally to you. I know it. It's our only chance of salvation. You are throwing yourself away, into perdition, perhaps. Do you know that?' He stood, regarding her sternly, resolved to set her upon his own intellectual plane, to put before her serious issues, at the least to throw open the floodgates for her pride. Her face paled slightly, and she asked with quivering lip, "'Don't you care for me a, a little?' He swung his arm in earnest gesture. "'Care for you? Of course I care for you. Do you suppose I should be here tonight if I didn't, not being a scoundrel?' "'Then why are you so unkind?' "'Because, though I love you in one way, there is only one woman whom I could love in all ways, and the woman isn't you. Simply that.' If we let this go on, you would be giving all, I, a part. This can't be news to you. I love you because your beauty and charm fire my blood. It's oriental in its simplicity. Have you thought of what the end of it might possibly be? The higher man suddenly had revolted against the readiness to seize the two winning prey, and had grown reckless in use of devastating weapons. He expected to see her facile southern nature rise in passionate anger, or her womanliness shrink in tears of disgust from the insult. He would have acted a brute part. But in either case he would have laid her love dead at her feet. He waited. The unexpected happened. She looked at him doggedly out of hardened eyes from which all the languor had faded. And then she said, in her deep voice, I would sooner have a part of any kind of love from you than all the best love of any other man. He remained for a moment amazed at her strength. Had he conceived an insultingly wrong impression of her? Do you mean that you love me in spite of the words I've just used? Yes, I do, she replied. I humbly beg your forgiveness, he said in a low voice. There was a long silence, broken only by the ticking of the Ormolu clock on the mantelpiece. The apparent vastness of the great drawing-room, stiffly furnished with its cold Louis Carr's furniture, increased the impression of stillness. Hugh glanced at Minna from time to time, hesitating to speak. She had changed utterly from the glowing girl who had stood up before him an hour ago to coax his admiration for her finery. Her face was set with lines of determination and stubborn character. The riddle of the woman lay open to him who could read it. The false light of the eternal, unutterably tragic missolution dawned upon the man. "'I have made a horrible mistake,' he said at last. "'You have, in misjudging me.' "'I meant that I have used cruel words. My justification was my intention. I wish I could make you some reparation.' "'That is easy,' she murmured. "'Name it.' Ask me to marry you. Marriage. At last he was brought brutally face to face with the problem that he had hitherto left unconsidered to fortuity. Indeed, he grew conscious that marriage had been but vaguely contemplated. He persuaded himself into a belief in his own honour. The rottenness of the belief stared at him hideously. The nakedness of his desire appeared before him, stripped of its glamour. He despised himself put her on moral heights beyond his reach. 
to ask her in marriage would be an added insult. And her money, a queen's diary. The very temptation to retrieve his fortunes therewith was an ugly and abhorrent thing. He ran the gauntlet of all these thoughts, emerged with rebellion in his soul, seized angrily at the first unhonoured standard to his hand. Marriage, with the daughter of Israel Hart, the Jew moneylender. It was impossible. Half divining this last mood, she came to where he sat, knelt down and placed her clasped hands on his knee. Her eyes dwelt upon him, softening adorably. Andrea del Sarto might have painted her. "'Why don't you speak? I have offended you? Asked for too much?' "'Indeed I didn't expect it. I am a Jewess, and your people will despise me. And my father's a money-lender. It would be a disgrace to you. I was willing, ready, only—' The standard fell from the man's hand. He yielded, utterly disarmed. The woman conquered as she surrendered to his embrace. "'If I took your love and the gift of yourself,' he said, "'and did not marry you, just because you were Israel Hart's daughter, "'I should loathe myself. "'My child, I thought you a toy. "'I find you a woman, worthy to be any man's wife.' "'It would be sweet to be only yours,' she murmured. "'He kissed her again, then released her gently.' If I asked you to marry me now, I should be committing a base action, for other reasons. Try to understand them. I am very badly off for money. You are an heiress, and I owe you your father five thousand pounds on a reversion which no longer exists. I scraped together the interest. It's not heavy. Your father has treated me as a friend and not as a client. But he has been reproaching me with the rottenness of the security. Until I am clear of him, at least, I, I can't ask you to marry me. Minna broke into happy laughter. You foolish fellow, don't you see the obvious way of settling it? If you marry me, the debt would be dissolved, in its own juice, so to speak. His pride revolted. Impossible. It was mere trickery. Any honest man would cry out upon him. She could not see the point of honour. Her training had not sensitised her perceptions in such things. "'What is to be done, then?' she asked. "'You won't take me without making me your wife, and you won't make me your wife on account of my money. I don't believe you want me at all.' After what had passed, there was but one answer to be given. At the end she smiled up at him and whispered, "'That was very sweet, but it doesn't tell us what is to be done.' He glanced at the clock. The thing to be done is to say good-night, and for you to go to sleep, happy. I will find some way out of it, and I will bind myself to you forever by this kiss. There. So they parted, and he walked home with the softness of her young lips upon his, wondering what the devil was going to happen next. On the whole, happy. Quite unconscious that he had been fooled to the top of his bent, by the instinctive wiles of a woman, herself merely carried away by an unregulated, headlong passion. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 3 Meanwhile, a problem of some complexity remained to be solved. 
Hugh devoted the morning's clear-headedness to vain attempts at solution. From the position in which he found himself there was no issue without a loss of honour. The prospect chafed him like a hair shirt. If he had erred in times past, far from the paths of the homely virtuous, he had at least despised the crooked ways of the smugly vicious. He had been the thief of no woman's virtue. Such remnants of it as had come into his possession he had paid for right royally. There is a difference between singing En Prince and singing En Voyou, in spite of the moralist. Hugh was an honourable man. At least he desperately clung to such a conception of himself. Three courses lay open. To abandon Minna altogether, to make her his mistress, to make her his wife. By adopting any one of these he would find himself forsworn. He journeyed up to his chambers in a denunciatory attitude of mind. Subjects for anathema were plentiful. His own folly in borrowing the five thousand pounds from Israel Hart, his greater folly in incurring the debts towards the payment of which that sum had been mainly devoted, his uncle for having played this April Fool's trick upon him, and lastly the fate that had robbed him of Irene, a clause that invariably terminated his combination. Three solid middle-aged city men were travelling in his compartment. They appealed to his fancy as potential Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. If he had lifted up his voice like Job, they would obviously have told him that it served him right. The parallel put him into a good humour. Shortly after his arrival, a telegram came from Minna. Could she see him for a minute today, and if so, where? She could meet him at any place and at any hour. It was only to see that he was not vexed with her. She passed a wretched night and was depressed. It was a long, impulsive message, regardless of the principles of condensation, and couched in German, so as to not become the common property of the young ladies of the Sunnington Telegraph Office. Hugh dispatched an answer, making an appointment at three o'clock in his chambers. At a quarter past, Minna appeared, blushing, introduced by the clerk. Her pretty, apologetic air compelled reassuring endearments. Of course she was dearly welcome. The whole of the dingy room was lit up with her charms. The very wig-block was beaming at her. She laughed happily, turned towards the object indicated, and seized the wig. Would he put it on for her to see? She would fix it herself. No, she didn't like him in it. He looked too wise. They had a lover's hour, vowed they would conjure light out of darkness, and be each other's before long. A formal demand in marriage was out of the question. Israel Hart would not give his daughter to a penniless barrister and starveling poet who owed him money. And Hugh's self sickened at the thought of asking him. Besides, he had expressed his desire that Minna should marry a friend of his, appropriately named Goldberg, who kept an extensive bucket-shop in Gracechurch Street. To inform her father would put an end to everything. He would carry her off and shut her up like Danae in a brazen tower, into which Goldberg would Zeus-wise insinuate himself, this time at Axisio's invitation. Hugh proposed a two-year private engagement, during which period he would bestir himself strenuously to make his fortune. Minna acquiesced, but only with the outside of her lips. She was not accustomed to wait for what she desired, and for the matter of that neither was Hugh. At any rate, things were moved a stage further during the visit. Before she departed, she desired of him perfect secrecy. 
he was to keep it from everybody and Mrs. Merriam. He agreed. "'I shall certainly not tell Mrs. Merriam,' he replied dryly. She cast him a quick, suspicious glance out of otherwise glowing eyes. Then she bade him farewell, and tripped through the door that he held open for her. The following day was Sunday. Although the season was the end of March, there had been a sudden cold snap. In the night the temperature had fallen, and the wind risen. The morning gave the spectacle of a blizzard, driving sleet and snow. Hugh laid down the rough, pencilled scraps of the verses he had been polishing, and went to look disconsolately out of the window. The prospect was uninviting, scarcely anything visible through the vibrating screen of swift, horizontal grey lines. He had agreed to meet Minna at noon, weather permitting, in the little patch of wood that stretched behind the lindens, her father's house, to more or less open country. The weather was hardly in a permissive mood. He felt that he could annul the engagement with a free conscience. It would be madness of Minna to expect its fulfilment. But knowing that a woman in love is capable of many madnesses, he resolved to keep his tryst, on the chance of being able to dispatch her summarily home again. He started out with ulster collar drawn up to his ears and thick gloves, and strode fast through the gale along the deserted pavements. At the appointed spot in the wood he waited for a quarter of an hour. Minna did not come. He congratulated her on her common sense, greater than his own, and retraced his steps. As he emerged from the branch lane leading from the wood onto the Heath Road, and meeting the latter at a point somewhat nearer the Merriam's house than the Lindens, he was passed by a hansom cab, the window of which was down. After a few yards the trap-door in the roof was pushed open, and the cabman drew up. Hugh approached, and perceived through the side-glass Irene's expectant face. On the window being pulled up he saw her sitting in the chilliness of an indoor silk blouse, while by her side, huddled up in her sealskin jacket, was a dirty, emaciated, shivering little girl. "'What a lucky chance to have passed you!' cried Irene. "'Will you do something really kind for me?' "'Anything in the world. I suppose I'm to fetch a doctor,' he replied, with an eye on her new protégé. "'No, I'll send Jane, if necessary. Go round to this little creature's home and tell them she's ill, and that I'll take care of her for to-day. And if they like, I'll find a decent place for her. She lives with an uncle and aunt who beat her. Fancy sending out a child with nothing on to sell violets on a day like this. Where do they live? At 24 George Street, in the slums at the back of the station. Their name is Jackson. Come back and tell me. I'll give you some lunch. Hugh nodded, stepped back, gave the word to the driver, and the cab started off. He trudged along in its wake, amused and touched by the little scene. He could imagine Irene first catching sight of the child, her indignant whipping off of her sealskin, putting the child into the cab, arranging everything off-hand in her undoubting imperial fashion. He smiled, too, at her unhesitating anticipation of his immediate acceptance of his mission. It was well that there was a woman like Irene in the world. As he passed by the house, he saw her figure flit quickly across an upper window. He pictured her, stirring up the maids, getting a hot bath ready, and kneeling before the fire with a roll of flannel in her hands, the light playing in her fair hair and illuminating her face. He dwelt upon the picture until he had reached his destination. He found Mrs. Jackson. Her husband was not in. If one judged from his home, he was certainly at that moment hugging the lee side of a public-house doorway, waiting for opening time. 
The room was filthy. Mrs. Jackson, if possible, filthier. Her habitual speech, as Hugh shortly discovered, was filthy in the superlative degree. She was also perceptibly drunk. There was an apology for a bed in the room, but in a corner lay some sacking and a bundle of rags, evidently the child's sleeping place. Hugh explained his mission. To his surprise, met with instant success. Mrs. Jackson did not see why she should support a child that was nothing to her. She was expecting a sanguinary one of her own shortly. If anyone else cared to support her, they were welcome. For all she cared, they could take her to a much warmer place than Irene's far side. "'It's all right,' he said to Irene when she came down to the hall to meet him. "'Good,' she said. "'Come upstairs for a moment.' She turned abruptly, and he followed. He knew the signs of Irene's indignation. Snugly in bed, in the room that former tenants had fitted as a nursery, but unused now for that purpose, to Irene's wistful regret, her one sadness, lay the little girl. Irene went up to her, drew back the bedclothes, and tenderly exposed her shoulders and bosom. "'Look,' she said. He bent over. The flesh was livid with bruises. "'I should like to go among them with a flaming sword,' she cried, "'and sweep them off the face of the earth.' "'I wish you could, before the child they're expecting is born to them,' he said grimly. He sketched his visit. Irene gave but half heed. His first remark had struck a strongly vibrating chord. "'Let us pray to God that it is never born alive,' she said. "'To think that such brute beasts can have a child, and oh, why are they allowed to bring them into the world, and give them the most glorious privilege of humanity?' "'The next best privilege is to be able to do what you're doing now,' said Hugh, concerningly. "'But what is it, after all? It's like trying to stop an avalanche and just getting hold of a handful of snow.' "'Well, you've got your handful.' "'Poor little thing,' said Irene. She tucked the clothes around her, and after a few nurse-like touches to the arrangements of the room, took Hugh downstairs. Lunch was ready. They sat down together. Gerard was absent on his fishing visit. They imagined him glowering at the weather through Weston's dining-room windows. "'What will he say to our little friend upstairs?' asked Hugh, helping himself to claret. "'What do you mean?' "'Well, you can't settle her comfortably for life at a moment's notice.' Irene opened her eyes wide. "'Do you mean that he won't be pleased to have her here? My dear Hugh!' He smiled inwardly, reprudently changed the topic, inquired as to her discovery of the child. "'Why was she herself out in such awful weather?' "'I was taking some trifles to a girl who is ill,' she answered. The rest of her explanation agreed with Hugh's conjecture. Driving back, she had seen a woman trying to get the child on its feet. She had stopped the cab and swooped off with her prize. "'But you needn't have risked your own life by taking off your sealskin and coming home in that flimsy thing,' he said, with a smile. "'Even St. Martin didn't do that.' "'Do you know,' she replied, with a charming viciousness, and leaning over the table, "'I considered St. Martin one of the meanest characters in history.' Some time after lunch, the servant came into the smoking-room and announced that Mr. Jackson had called. "'He's a very horrid-looking man, ma'am,' she remarked. "'I'll go and settle him,' said Hugh, rising. "'No, let me. I shall enjoy it,' replied Irene. And she departed with the light of battle in her eyes. She met the man in the hall. He began to bluster. Hugh, by a turn of the passage, stood an unobserved spectator. 
"'You're not going to have the child back,' said Irene. "'Can I have compensation?' said the man. "'I'm not going to give up my wife's flesh and blood for nothing. "'Tain't lightly. We are poor folks, and the kid earns a little.' "'More shame for you, a great hulking brute like you.' "'I don't mind taking five pounds.' "'You won't get a halfpenny.' "'Then out I goes to fetch a policeman.' He moved towards the door. Irene took a step forward. "'You dare threaten me?' she cried. "'You! Get out of my house, and never let me hear of you again. Or, as there's a lord in heaven, I'll put the Children's Protection Society on your tracks, and you'll see the inside of a jail.' Whether it was the threat or Irene's shining eyes that cowed the man, Hugh could not tell. He slunk away with muffled maledictions, and banged the street door after him. Hugh ran to meet her, his heart aglow with her. It was the eternal combat of Mithra and Ahriman. He broke into boyish eulogies. She laughed a little excitedly, and wiped her lips with her handkerchief. "'Let us go back to the smoking-room. The foul beast! The whole air tastes of him!' <laughs> "'You have a delicious way of setting the law of England at defiance,' he said, laughing. "'Bad laws ought to be defied,' she retorted, full of the flush of victory which exquisitely feminine conviction he had not the heart to disturb. A little later she claimed his assistance in another matter. "'It's the extension of premises for the institution,' she said. "'The plans came in yesterday, and I can't make head or tail of them.' She produced the roll of plans from a corner, and spread the sheets on the desk. They bent over them together, and for a long time were deep in architectural discussion. "'It will take such a long time.' she said at last. I wish I could have it all built to-morrow. I have no doubt you could, if you really tried, said Hugh. You can bring most things to pass. The institution was Irene's pet philanthropic interest, a charitable organisation of which he was the founder and guiding principal. At first Gerard had scouted the scheme as entirely impracticable, but Irene had succeeded, and, devoting to it her impetuous energy, had lifted those around her to equal enthusiasm. Both Gerard and Hugh were members of the committee, and attended meetings with praiseworthy regularity. Irene rolled up the plans and replaced them in their corner. "'How little we can do to alleviate the misery in the world,' she said with a sigh. Hugh smiled. "'If you could only get a lever long enough and a fulcrum, you would move the universe, like Archimedes. But you will have to get to heaven first. "'That's just the appalling part of the idea of heaven.' she answered. As soon as you get there you are useless, utterly and besottedly useless. It's the only terrible aspect of death, that, whether there is an hereafter or not, you are cut off forever from doing a hand's turn for your fellow-creatures. Everything has to be done in the little sphere of your life, when lever and fulcrum are unattainable. I wonder sometimes that I can be happy, and yet I am, blessedly happy. Can you explain it? He replied vaguely, so as to hide betrayal of a little pang, for he knew her thoughts were with Gerard. Association brought his own to Minna for the first time almost since he caught sight of Irene in the cab. Dismaying comparisons forced themselves on his mind. "'Why are you frowning like that?' she asked lightly. "'I was thinking of all the happiness you deserve.' She laughed with a little air of mockery. "'Does it distress you so much?' "'I suppose it does,' he said. "'Now it is your turn to explain.' But Irene, like a wise woman, 
dropped the subject. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 4 Minna Hart was an only child. She had lost her mother early in life, and had been left to the casual care of a series of governesses, with none of whom, save one, had she contracted a warmer bond than that of mutual indifference. For this exceptional one she had conceived a girlish passion, but as the young lady had disappeared one night, carrying with her some of her pupils' most valuable jewellery, Minna's love had been turned to hatred, which vented itself afterwards upon all succeeding governesses. As soon as it was practicable, she declared her education to be finished, and herself to have done with instructors for ever. Whereupon her father, who had as vague a notion of rearing a daughter as of fighting a line of battleship, brought into the house, as duenna, his only sister, an elderly, stout, rubicund, black-haired Jewess of the most orthodox faith. As Minna had never been accustomed to pay regard to Judaic observances, and only went to synagogue now and then, in order to show off her new dresses, her Aunt Leah's interfering piety maddened her past insurance. Moreover, the good lady in the streets, with blousy face, red roses, gold chain, and a brooch to the size of a dessert plate, was a sight for gods and men with which Minna shrank from being associated. So when Aunt Leah died suddenly, Minna was inexpressibly relieved. She issued forthwith another domestic manifesto, in which she announced her intention of leading thenceforward a perfectly untrammelled and independent life. Accordingly, she reigned supreme in her father's house, obeying all her caprices, bending her servants to her will, or summarily dismissing the recalcitrant, surrounding herself with all the bodily luxuries that money can buy, and eating out her young heart in loneliness. Beyond the strong Hebrew sense of parentage, Israel Hart had little sympathy with his daughter. She despised his race and loathed his profession. He felt it instinctively. Her company was an embarrassment. He could not talk of gowns and laces, of music, picture-galleries, and light literature. The engrossing pursuit of money-making interested her not in the least. Outside relatives, whose foibles and disagreeablenesses form so harmonious a household bond, there were not. By the wives and daughters of his city co-religionist friends, his daughter passed with a sniff of her delicate nose. She would have none of them. Israel shrugged his shoulders, and beyond insisting on her cooperating with him in the interchange of a few formal courtesies, ordeals worse than Sabbath observances under Aunt Leah's dispensation, left her entirely to her own devices. In the house they rarely met, except at dinner. Afterwards, if the humour seized her, she would play to him for half an hour in the drawing-room, and then he would go down to his study. Her comings and goings were of little concern to him. He would have given her a staff of lady companions, had she desired it. But as she refused to be interfered with, Israel, with many wanderings as to the strange and hidden ways of womankind, sagaciously refrained from interference. On one point, however, he stood firm. When the question of her marriage came up for discussion, his voice should have considerable weight. But Minna scoffed at the idea of marriage with such hooked noses and shiny crowns and puffed cheeks as ventured to come a-wooing, and she sat instead at her window and sighed, poor child, for the prince that never could come. She lived an aimless, lonely life, 
wasting her young and splendid womanhood in a vicious circle of unsatisfied longings. The society of her own folk she would not. The alien society that she craved would not her. She was a social leper, the Jew moneylender's daughter. Yet, on looking inward, she knew that the leprosy of her wealth was in her heart's blood. She could not cleanse herself from it, bathe in the Jordan of renunciation, go forth into the world and work out her freedom. She had the Syrian repugnances of Naaman. Sometimes the palatial loneliness of her home weighed too awfully upon her spirit. The torture of unsatisfied cravings set all her nerves jangling. Then she would fly from town, without her maid, and visit at Brighton her old Syrian nurse, Anna Cassaba, who gave up to her the best rooms in her house, petted and soothed her, and uttered comfortable prophecies concerning the prince. Perhaps Anna was the only creature in the world she cared for. The old woman worshipped her with an oriental passion of devotion. At Brighton, in the intoxication of her liberty and the vainglory of her beauty, the girl sought adventures, played recklessly with fire. She learned the languorous witchery of her voice, and it became a wild pastime to exercise it upon the chance-met man. Once a young guardsman fell in with her upon the parade, carried her off to dinner. At the end she insisted upon paying half the bill. He demurred. She rose, and declared she would walk straight out of the place if he did not accept with good grace. He yielded the point. They went to the theatre together, and then for a long moonlit drive along the coast. It was audacious bliss. She arrived home at two o'clock in the morning. Anna was sleepless with terror, in spite of a warning telegram. Minna explained lightly. The old woman lifted up her young cheeks with tremulous fingers. "'Oh, God, my child, you've come to no harm!' Minna broke into merry laughter. Only when the prince came would there be that danger. She would know him in a moment. And she cut the young guardsman dead in the street the next day, having wiped off his kisses for ever. But, at last, came Hugh. Oddly enough, she met him first in the Merriam's drawing-room, whither she had gone with her father in anything but an adventurous spirit. Some shrewd remark of Hugh's had caught Israel's fancy. With a parting handshake he ventured to express the pleasure it would give him to see Mr. Coleman at the Lindens. The young man sought for a noncommittal phrase of courtesy, but a glance from swimming eyes, half-proud, half-appealing, brought a quick acceptance to his lips. And that was the beginning of things. That Minna Hart and herself came to be on visiting terms was, of course, Irene's doing. Her revolt at social cruelties had been fired by the scant courtesy paid to the Jew financier's daughter at a large political garden party, and her impulsive scorn of convention led her to walk the next day to the Lindens and call upon the innocent pariah. It was like many other of Irene's impetuous deeds of knight errantry. Gerard had expostulated, veiling profound distaste under tones of pleasantry. Men who lent money at the god of Jacob alone knew how much per cent were not welcome in a society belonging virtually, if not actually, to the race of borrowers. It was putting the leopard to lie down with the kid, setting the calf and the lion and the fatling together, without any reasonable hope of millennial advantages. But the dawning dismay in Irene's eyes, and the quiver of protest about her lips, had checked further expressions of cynicism. He had given way, even assumed a magnanimous air of enthusiasm and with his approbation for Lance and his visiting card for Buckler, 
Irene, a modern Britomart, had set forth on her quest. It was on Minna and Israel's return visit that Hugh had first met them. At the outset, Minna had received Irene's offer of friendship with unfeigned gladness. It was the opening to her of that charmed circle of Gentile society, at whose bounds she had stood so long disconsolate. Indeed, if she had given to Irene a breath of the warmth of her southern nature, Irene would have taken her to her heart, championed her triumphantly through the ordeal of prejudice, and the girl's own beauty would have done the rest. But to Minna she was indefinite discomfort. A recrudescence of Jewish pride gained strength from vague, instinctive feminine jealousies. And then came Hugh. His coming disarranged her universe. Amongst other phenomena, it froze up whatever kindly feelings she entertained towards Irene. This time it was no willful playing with fire. She flung herself like a mad moth into the flame. She wrote wild letters to old Anna Cassaba. The prince has come. I knew him at a glance. My heart is full of glowing happiness. I must tell you, to prevent myself crying it aloud. I cannot sleep. How oh, soon I will bring my prince to you. The old woman's eyes grew dim as she read, as only old eyes can, that look backward and inward upon tumultuous passion of long ago. But in her wisdom she burned these letters. It might not be the true prince, after all, she thought. But Minna doubted not. She had gained her victory, gained it, it is true, at a price, but her ungoverned passion did not pause now to consider it. She saw Hugh nearly every day, sometimes at his chambers, sometimes in quiet meeting-places in the West End, now and then at the Lindens. She was happy. Her daily hour of sweetness gave retrospective and anticipatory joy to the other three-and-twenty. The elaboration of a distinctive attire for each interview was in itself an absorbing occupation. The undecided aspect of their relations afforded her also tremulous amusement. "'It is rather sweet, this pretending, isn't it?' she once remarked to him. "'What pretending?' he asked, somewhat taken aback. "'This long engagement, as if you are going to make your fortune in two years. It is quite enchanting, and at the end, I suppose, orange blossoms and rice and all things nice, eh?' She raised her eyes to his, in lazy mockery. They were walking through the courts of the temple, and slid her hand through his arm. "'What would you have?' said Hugh. With a sigh she brought his ear down to her lips, and whispered, "'You! I am not going to wait two years for you. But we go on pretending a little longer.' "'But I am in grim earnest, my Vivian.' "'So am I,' she replied, with a smile. After this he realised the impracticability of his scheme. Minna was not one of those sweet future housewives for whom a man works and waits. There was too much contagion of the blood in the matter. Yet he swore to himself there should be no irregular union between them, and that he would not marry her until he had freed himself from her father's clutches. But how he raised the money was beyond his power of scheming. At this stage of embarrassment came the announcement that a son and heir had been born to his uncle. As far as the value of security went, the bond in Israel Hart's possession was so much waste paper. A post or two brought a comforting letter from his sisters, two maiden ladies many years his senior, who lived a gentle life in a little Hertfordshire townlet. They sympathised with him over this final theft of his inheritance. The good ladies considered it nothing less. 
but assured him that his uncle Geoffrey would leave him something when he died. He had hinted as much some months before, when apologising to them for his senile folly. It was the very least he could do under the circumstances. Whilst reading this letter, Hugh was suddenly startled by an inspired flash. His difficulties melted. He rose from his breakfast and walked about the room, settling the details of the scheme. He would borrow the five thousand pounds from his sisters on the security of the reversion, such as it worth, pay off Hart forthwith, reduce the rate of interest he was paying, a natural thing, for his sisters would not accept usurer's interest, devote as much of his yearly income as he could spare to a reserve fund, in the event of the legacy not covering the debt, and marry Minna forthwith. In the event of his own death, he would leave Minna directions to pay his sisters, so that only in this contingency would Israel be virtually repaid out of his own pocket. In any case, his sisters would not be losers. The brilliancy of the prospect blinded him to at least one fallacy and two unsound premises. The following afternoon he was at Selwood. His sisters, Alicia and Dora, warned by telegram of his coming, met him at the station and walked with him, one on either side, through the town. The broad, quiet street, its breadth oddly exaggerated by the lowness of the straggling rows of old-fashioned houses, terminated at a common, on the further side of which stood the church. Amidst a clump of trees near the rectory glowed the red brick of the house where the two sisters lived. It was a peaceful and gentle spot, and it seemed to harmonise with their faces, which bore no marks of greater stress and strain than those occasioned by their disappointment in a housemaid, and their mild, vague regrets for the fuller, wedded life that had not come to them. Hugh looked around, drew in great draughts of the sweet air, and then glanced affectionately at his sisters. They walked beside him proudly, holding their heads high. They had gentle but enlarged ideas of the importance of their family, and Hugh, in their eyes, was the incarnation of its distinction. The town was not honoured by a man every day in the week. They felt the admiring and respectful eyes of Selwood upon them. "'We were just going to write to you when your telegram came,' said Dora. "'We'd better wait until we get indoors,' said Alicia reprovingly. As she was five years older than Dora, who herself was ten years older than Hugh, she considered her sister's experience of the world somewhat immature. Hugh laughed, being familiar with Alicia's habits. They were, doubtless, about to ask his advice concerning the finances of the village goose-club, or some such solemn matter which could not be discussed save with closed doors. It was only after he had allowed them to refresh him with tea in their comfortable drawing-room that he alluded to the tabooed subject. He lit a cigarette. He could have lit the Queen's pipe, had he so chosen, for they indulged him greatly, and inquired in what way he could serve them. They looked puzzled for a moment. Then Dora's countenance cleared. "'Oh, the letter we were going to write to you. No, it wasn't to ask you for anything. It... She looked across at Alicia, who glanced back at her with an air of intelligence and readiness. "'The fact is, dear Hugh,' said the elder, "'we have rather unfortunate news to give you. Your uncle Geoffrey is not very well.' Though he expressed his sorrow, he smiled at the anticlimax. The dear, fussy sisters. "'In fact, his heart is seriously affected,' continued Alicia gravely, "'and he can't possibly live very long.' "'The deuce he can't,' said Hugh, who began to lose sight of the humorous aspect of things. "'How do you know?' "'We received a long letter from him this morning, in which he refers to other things besides.' 
"'You'd better let me see it,' said Hugh. "'Would you get it, Dora?' said Alicia. And then, while the younger sister was fetching the document from a secretaire by the window, "'I don't bear malice. I am grieved to hear of Geoffrey Coleman's affliction, and I hope he is prepared to meet his end like a Christian and a gentleman. But I consider his conduct towards you has been simply shameful.' Hugh took the letter from Dora's hand and read it through. "'I can get on without his money, my dears,' he said bravely. "'Of course you can,' said Alicia proudly. "'A Coleman need not be beholden to any man. "'But that does not condone anything in your uncle's behaviour. "'He rose with a laugh, curled his moustache to a fiercer angle, "'and put his arm round Dora's shoulder, who was standing, and addressed Alicia. "'What does it matter? "'Don't trouble your dear kind hearts about it. "'I'm sorry for the poor old chap.' He was kind to me when a boy, has done more for me than I ever did for him. I came to see how you two were getting on, and to comfort my heart with a bottle of Grandfather's old Madeira. So let us be happy. What a dear noble fellow you are to take it like that, said Dora, kissing him. My dear child, he replied with a laugh, how often am I to tell you that I am not a graven image? He did not feel at all noble on the contrary, very ignominiously disappointed. His iridescent scheme had vanished like a soap-bubble. Geoffrey Coleman had intimated in his letter, with much deprecatory circumlocution, that on looking lately into his affairs he found them by no means as prosperous as he had imagined. There were depreciations in lands, unlucky investments, mortgages. In fine, much as he desired it, he would be able to do nothing at all for Hugh. And then— he was practically moribund. Hugh shrugged off the disappointment. To ask his sisters for a loan out of their comparatively small fortune, upon no security more tangible than the promise of his brotherly efforts to repay them, was absolutely impossible. One comfort remained, for which he thanked the god of chance. The opportune arrival of the letter had effectually precluded his proposal. He returned to London, where a sudden stress of work awaited him. But the briefs of a criminal advocate, chiefly engaged in small cases, are not marked very high. Moreover, ill luck attended him. After three of his clients were convicted, he made desperate efforts to secure a favourable verdict for a fourth, and his failure roused his exasperation. His book of poems came out just at this time, to be less glowingly received by literary journals than the two previous ones. They complained of tenuity of thought, over-elaboration, advised, finally, a robuster view, a franker acceptance of the emotional facts of life. He threw his press-cuttings angrily into the waste-paper basket. What did the fools know about it? It was the only sphere in which he could divest himself of his accursed emotionality. He turned to Irene. Yet even her tribute fell short of its customary wholeness. She noticed a tendency towards the symbolism of the modern French school in his new volume. She quoted a line, said it suggested Stéphane Malarme. Hugh broke out tempestuously. "'Why don't you call me a decadent at once, an artificer of phrase, an exhausted idealist? That's what your criticism comes to. You feel as I'm on the downgrade, and you don't like to tell me.' "'Oh, no, Hugh,' she postulated. Much of it is as exquisite as ever. But I love all your work to be exquisite. It's only here and there that the meaning is not quite clear, and the language appears forced. 
she exerted herself to heal his wounded susceptibilities. But her criticism had sunk deep. It was true. He was on the downgrade, in every sphere. Hampered with debts, losing his hold on the sympathies of juries, his poetical vein worked out. He saw exaggerated ruin staring him in the face. He had sowed the wind, was about to reap the inevitable harvest. The high-spirited man, half ashamed of his life, often loses sense of proportion. A gewaita, or concentration of bad weathers, as the Germans appropriately name a storm, had temporarily gathered about him, and he mistook it for the destroying whirlwind. Meanwhile, Minna came to his chambers, wove her morganesque spells about his senses, provoking, seductive, tempting, sympathetic, instinctively bringing him to the brink of the false depths in her nature, cunningly clinking her money-bags in his ear. One afternoon he met Gerard at the club in St. James's Street, to which both belonged. They were to dine together, later, with some friends. The talk had turned to domestic affairs. Irene, not being able as yet to find a suitable home for her rescued waif, was keeping her in the house. In fact, was growing attached to the child. "'That's the devil of it,' said Gerard. "'When once Irene attaches herself to a thing, nothing can make her let go.' "'Why should she?' asked Hugh shortly. Gerard lay back in his chair and watched the blue wreaths writhing from his pipe. Then he said slowly, "'There are occasions when it's awkward. Sometimes I wish Irene were not so strenuous.' Oh, "'Confound it, man!' cried Hugh. "'How could you, of all men, disparage her?' Irene's husband looked at him queerly out of the corner of his eye. "'Irene didn't quite step ready-made out of heaven.' "'It's a precious good thing she didn't. Otherwise she would not have looked upon you and me.' "'You're a poet, my friend, and I am a philosopher.' "'You're a married man, I suppose you mean, and I am a damn fool. You ought to be separated from Irene for a year or two, then you would appreciate her.' "'There is no necessity, I assure you,' retorted Gerard coolly. "'And as for your being a damn fool, well, I have known you too long not to have my own ideas about it. Anyhow, you're growing gunpowdery, not yourself. What's wrong?' "'My liver's out of order.' said Hugh. An acquaintance came up, and they discussed other matters. But it was only afterwards that Hugh recognised how near to a quarrel he had come with his best friend. A less equable temper than Gerard's might have flared up in resentment at his angry speeches. As it was, Gerard seemed to forget the incident, but it aided Hugh to realise his own irritability. Shortly before Whitsuntide, Minna went to Brighton. Her excuse to Hugh was the prospect of a colossal male dinner-party given to half the Hebrew bucket-jock keepers in London. If she remained in town, she would have to play Herodias's daughter at this orgy. As the only condition on which she would consent to do this, that she should receive Goldberg's head on a charger, was incapable of fulfilment, she was withdrawing from the scene altogether. But she did not go without Hugh's promise to join her during the Whitsuntide recess. As soon as the courts rose, he went down. It was lovely weather. Minna looked radiant with youth and happiness. On the evening of his arrival she sat with him on the same seat on the parade as had witnessed the beginning of her escapade with the young guardsman. She thought thrillingly of the difference between the two experiences. The dusk of the warm evening was closing round them. From the head of the pier came the faint, languorous strains of a waltz. 
She edged nearer to him, laid her hand on his knee. Are you happy that you are here? The touch and the voice, the perfume of her hair so close to his face, the distant music, the charm of the evening, produced their intoxication. Minna, he whispered. Yes? The girl's heart throbbed tumultuously. She had waited weeks and weeks in patience for that note of passion. She hung breathlessly on his lips for their next utterance. I give up the waiting. I might strive till doomsday. I don't care. Anything you wish. Only soon. Yes, very soon, she murmured with an adorable catch in her voice. At a registrar's, almost at once. I'll give notice tomorrow. Tuesday will be the day. He had yielded. There was only one Irene in the world. She was beyond his reach. The only other woman he desired lay ready to his arms. And she had money, money, money. The only talisman for happiness in this world. Yet it was a hateful thought. Even at this moment he cursed the temptation, fiercely fooled himself into the conviction that it did not enter into his plans. He loved her. It was a love-match, pure and simple. "'Would you be willing, Minna?' he asked, in a low voice. "'To let the marriage be a secret until I could put my affairs in order?' This bramble seemed to catch his honour on its slippery path downhill. He made the proposal, however, diffidently, lest it might hurt the sensitive susceptibilities of race and social station. But she broke into deep, cooing laughter. "'You dear, wise, stupid,' she said. "'That's the very plan I have been dreaming over, night and day, for weeks. And I wouldn't tell you until I felt you would agree. I have worked out every little detail.' She brushed his ear quickly with her lips. "'On Tuesday,' she whispered. Then she rose quickly from the seat and turned gaily, facing him. "'Let us walk about and be proud of ourselves.'" End of Chapter 4 Chapter 5 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 5 as Minna had taken care to have completed the fifteen days' residence required of one of the parties for a marriage by licence, it was she who, accompanied by Hugh, gave the necessary notice the next day. On the Tuesday in Whitson Week they were married, taking with them as one witness Anna Cassaba, whose Jewish conscience Minna had wheedled into complicity. The old woman, bent and thin, her swarthy face wrinkled with a myriad lines, fastened eyes upon them that still glowed with unquenched fires. Her darling's prince had come. A handsome prince, indeed, for which she pardoned him his Gentile birth. But it took all her love for Minna to reconcile her to the non-religious ceremony. Its bareness shocked her. The registrar was an old man in a skull-cap, with long white beard and lacklustre eyes. He took but indifferent interest in the pair. A wearied resignation showed itself in his manner as he administered the customary declarations, and pointed with shrivelled finger to the spaces wherein they should sign their names. He reminded one of an old scholar serving out trumpery fiction to the subscribers of a circulating library. A sorry book he was delivering up to them. A trivial pair were they for desiring it. He wished them good luck in a mechanical far-off tone. If they put the fees in the slot of an automatic machine and drawn out a marriage certificate, 
the business could not have been more impersonally concluded. Out in the street again they parted from the old woman, who stood for some time watching them as they went into the direction of the new lodgings that Hugh had engaged on the parade. She would dearly have loved to shelter them like lovebirds in her own nest, but prudence forbade Minna to reveal her secret to Anna's servants. She sighed as soon as they had disappeared, and turning her slow steps homewards, thought in her old woman's way of the beautiful children that would be. The newly-wedded pair walked on for a long while in silence. Minna pressed her husband's arm tightly, waiting for him to speak, half afraid of breaking in upon his thoughts, which she instinctively felt must be deeper than her own. Besides, the bareness of the ceremony had left her with a vague depression. It was a cold, grim episode in the heart of her romance. The walk grew hateful. She longed for the shelter of four walls and the dearer, warming shelter of his arms. Until they were about her, life was a limbo where nothing was defined. She glanced up at him timidly, to see him looking straight before him, his shoulders square, his head thrown back defiantly. Now that she had won him, she faltered over her victory. Her sudden dismay depressed her further. His present attitude was an impenetrable wall closing round the inner man. What did she know of him? For a sickening moment her brain was confused by the illusion that he was a total stranger whom some nightmare freak had made master of her destiny. It vanished quickly, but an after-sensation of fear remained. It was so different from the joyous glow that she had anticipated. She felt herself upon the verge of tears. Resentment against him, as if to justify her depression, began to spread like a dull pain around her heart. It was cruel of him to walk as he was doing, in other spheres, apart from her whom he had just made his wife. She withdrew her hand from his arm. He started, caught her hand and replaced it, pressed it closely to him, and looked down upon the trouble of her face. "'Poor child,' he said. "'You are shaken. Thank goodness it is over.' The tears began to gather in her eyes. "'It was horrid,' she said. "'Well, it will never happen again, sweetheart. Let us forget the dismal old man and think of what lies before us. You must be bright and happy on your wedding day.' "'If you would let me,' said Minna. "'I, dearest,' he exclaimed, with some prickings of self-reproach. "'Yes. Why have you walked all this time without speaking a word to me?' A tear fell. It roused the man's tenderness, melted the cold weight of misgiving that had held him silent. He felt that he had behaved brutally to her. She was his wife. Nothing could alter it. Cruelly vain now were searchings of heart and conscience. He had caused her unhappiness already. In the revulsion of feeling he broke into passionate speech, bending as he walked to whisper in her ear. He spoke foolish words of comfort, chided her lover-wise for vain fancies, explained his previous mood of seriousness. It was a solemn step they had taken. He was trying to realise that he held her happiness in his hands for the rest of her life. Minna began to brighten. "'It's foolish to cry,' she said, "'but I was hungering for a word.' He laughed gaily to cheer her. She must laugh, too, like a happy bride, to please her lord. He demanded to see the wedding ring. She held up her gloveless left hand. Her heart grew warm again, as the symbol of their union gleamed before the eyes of both. A little later she was nestling in his arms, murmuring her content in low dove-notes that stole sweetly over his senses. 
Thus began their married life. In moments of intoxication they touched some of the lower stars. In sober hours they trod upon indutable earth, which each pretended to call the floor of paradise. When the Trinity law sittings commenced, he was forced to return to London. On the evening before his departure they were sitting together on the pier, somewhat silent. Minna sighed her regret. The end of the honeymoon already. Although it was not the poor tragedy. Déjà, enfin. Yet Hugh's responsive, yes, already, was somewhat lacking in spontaneity. Minna marked it, with a little pang of mortification. But she said indulgently, I believe you want to get back to your horrid briefs. He did not deny the fact. I must lose no chances now, dear. Energy is doubly necessary. There ought to be no work in the world, she answered in her slow, plaintive way. I wish we could live just as we have been doing. Hugh protested. His blindest flatterer could not call him a fanatical Carlylean in his views of the nobility of toil. But purposeful joining in the great struggle for existence was a condition of moral health. He apologised for the platitude. Miller laughed, dubbed it an old wise fable to be ranked with the proverbial but fallacious advantages of early rising. She wanted nothing in life but love. It was its own purpose. It was the heart of life. But the heart cannot exist by itself, he answered earnestly. It must have its clothing of flesh, its supply of blood. And the stronger and more vigorous these outer walls of life are, the truer does it beat. I think you only look upon love as one of the outer graces of life, and not the heart at all, she said pensively. For you, the heart is something quite different. If it isn't you, dear, can you tell me what it is? he asked tenderly. She yielded herself to the arm he had slipped behind her. I suppose it is I, after all, she said with a half-sigh. I hope so. If not, I shall be throbbing quite bare without my wall of flesh. You will always go on loving me, Hugh. It would kill me now if you didn't. He answered, as millions of men have done since the world began, honestly, according to his lights, willing to love her loyally for her soul's sake, not for her beauties. Yet the consciousness of an effort of volition in the matter was disquieting. As usual, he took refuge in impetuous speech. I shall love you blindly and passionately till the hour of my death. The first morning in London he missed her. His bachelor room seemed cold and informal with vague discomfort. His breakfast, served by the porter's wife, who attended to his domestic needs, was singularly unappetizing. The morning paper supported in front of him by the teapot proved an inadequate substitute for Minna's pretty face and sweet, lazy talk. He convinced himself that he loved her truly. But when he reached his chambers, he found a brief awaiting him that demanded all his faculties. In half an hour he had forgotten her. When he went out for lunch it was with a glow of satisfaction at work accomplished. At the restaurant he met brother barristers, fellow frequenters of the place, and found unprecedented zest in the keen, masculine talk. In the afternoon, at his club, he dropped into a vacant armchair by the side of the editor of a great review, who cast over all who approached him the charm of his culture and the spell of his genius. By the afternoon post came two letters, one from Minna, who had addressed him at the club according to arrangement, the other from Irene. He opened his wife's first. 
read it with genuine tenderness. Everything she wrote was plunged into utter darkness. She was yearning for tomorrow when she would see her dear love again. A passionate letter with an untrained girl's lack of reserve. He went to a writing-table, finished a half-written letter of his own, and dropped it into the club letter-box. Then he read Irene's communication. It was a request that he would attend a committee meeting of her institution at half-past eight. Gerard was engaged and could not come. She reproached him for his absence, was anxious for a talk with him, had addressed him at the club on the chance of catching him. Long custom had caused him to regard such requests as commands. To please her, he would have broken many engagements. At half-past eight he found himself in the committee-room, and seated at the table by the side of Irene, who had reserved a place for him. The business concluded, they went back to Sonnington together by the district railway. "'What have you been doing with yourself all this time?' she said, as soon as they were settled comfortably in the train. "'Oh, lotus-eating, generally.' he replied. I thought so. Why? It is said to impair the memory. You seem to have forgotten all about us. I accept the rebuke, he answered meekly. Now tell me all that I have been oblivious of. She gave him her little budget of news, aware that he would give her no further information as to his own doings. She spoke of the waif she had rescued. You have no idea how strong and bonny she looks, I've been canvassing for votes for the St. Catherine schools. The election is next week. I think she'll get in. But I had an idea you were going to keep her, said Hugh. So had I. I shall miss her dreadfully. It would be so nice to adopt a child. But Gerard thinks this would be better for her, and he's so wise, you know. The idea of her husband's goodness and wisdom brought tenderness into her eyes, changing her expression to one of wonderful simplicity. Hugh made no reply, but leaned back and watched her across the compartment which they alone occupied. The central light that fell full upon her showed nothing in her face of the practical, capable woman of affairs, only the soft charm of girlhood that lingered still in her eight-and-twenty years. Presently she bent forward. "'Why do you look at me like that?' she asked, smiling. "'I was dipping into the perm of your face and reading my favourite bits.' he replied, half-seriously. "'What are they?' "'Oh, I'm not going to talk Shakespearean comedy to you,' he answered, laughing. "'So you needn't expect it.' The jest put her into a mood of light frivolity. They discussed faces. Some were sermons, some were hymns, ancient and modern, some were comic operas, some were post-office directories, whilst others were the collected works of minor poets. She wondered what her own was. Hugh suggested an ode. The comparison pleased her, and she thanked him prettily. Really, she had been a most ugly child, just as if she had been at a feast of features and stolen the scraps. A foolish chat took them to Sunnington. He walked with her as far as the gate of her house. "'When are you coming to dinner?' "'The day after tomorrow,' he said, after a moment's reflection. He shook hands with her and turned homeward with a buoyant step. He felt happy, exhilarated, a different man from the bereaved and depressed bridegroom who had set out in the morning. The day had opened with a wretched sense of loss. It closed with a glad consciousness of gain. He wondered at the change. The fact was that the small but varied incidents of the day, bringing him to close touch with the external world of work, action, 
thought and sympathy had stimulated a somewhat flagging moral energy. He was conscious of this as he dwelt upon them. Yes, these were the things that made life worth the living. These together formed the heart of life. Without them he would perish of inanition. Love, even sweet, wedded love, a fortnight old, was but the fringe, the grace, the colour, the what-you-will of adornment of life. But its heart, ah, no! He was honest and dishonest with himself at once. The conviction that he had spent his first day of absence from his wife in a whole-hearted enjoyment of the outer world was too absolute for him to accept it otherwise than frankly. But, deep down in his soul, were warning glimmerings of a truth to which he defiantly blinded his eyes. Glimmerings that dustly revealed a love that might be the heart of life, rich, throbbing, vitalising, such as his feelings for Minna, were not. He drew her letter from his pocket and read it through again. His heart smote him sorely for not feeling more miserable. Instinctively he conjured up the hours of sweet intoxication and caught at their lingering glamour. "'Poor little girl,' he said aloud, rising to his feet. "'How wretched she must be at this moment!' He sat down at his writing-table. "'Sweet little wife,' he began, "'I would that you were with me now.' And, for the hour, he was quite sincere. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 of Idols by William John Locke this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 6 I have something serious to say to you, my daughter. The speaker was Israel Hart. The place, his study, a commodious apartment overlooking the front drive, of which the most striking features were a great library table and a solid iron safe. The time was a mid-autumn Sunday afternoon. A cheerful fire showed up the warmth of a turkey carpet, and cast flickering gleams upon the varnished surfaces of the three oil-pitchers on the walls. The money-lender was sitting at the table, with some correspondence in front of him, when he greeted Minna, who had come in obedience to a summons, with this announcement. He was a man of over sixty, stout and loose-featured, with grizzling hair and beard. His race was clearly written on his countenance, which bore, too, that stamp of his calling which can best be suggested negatively as an absence of spirituality. The absorbing pursuit of money hardens the eyes and leaves the lower part of the face undetermined. One meets a thousand such, morning and evening, in suburban trains. Yet the face of Israel Hart was not without marks of integrity, and even of a certain benevolence. Minna crossed the room slowly to the fireplace, and rested one small shoe on the fender. "'Yes, papa?' "'I have here a formal letter from my good friend Simeon Goldberg, which I wish you to read.' "'About marrying me?' "'Yes, it deals exclusively with the subject.' "'What is the use of my reading the letter?' she said, without shifting her attitude, and ignoring the letter which her father had wheeled round in his chair in order to offer her. "'I can guess what's in it. Oh, dear, why does he worry?' "'I desire you to read it, Minna,' said her father. She moved, took it from him, read it nonchalantly, with a contemptuous smile, and threw it, with a woman's charming awkwardness in throwing, upon the table. "'I might be shares in a new company he was asking you for. 
Do I look like a scrip or a bond? I won't have him, of course, but when you write to him, tell him that's not the way to win a woman with blood in her veins. You're a foolish girl, Minna. If you have any kind of regard for my wishes, you will give this matter further consideration. Where will you, Minna Hart, find a better match? Oh, in a penny-box, she cried flippantly. At least it would have some latent fire at the end of it. You will regret it, said her father. It will be something to do, then. Tell him I'll try. It may soothe his vanity. Come here, my daughter, said the old man. She moved obediently to his side and put her hand in his that was held open. You and I have managed to drift quite apart, but I am your father and must think for you. What are you going to do when I am gone, if you don't get some good man to take care of you? She looked at him rather pityingly. It was such a futile question. Her undeveloped sympathies saw only its ludicrous, not its pathetic, side. "'Oh, I shall marry some day,' she said lightly. "'You need have no fear of that.' "'Aye, but whom?' She shrugged her shoulders and tapped her toe on the carpet with a shade of irritation. It was ridiculous to stand there like a tableau vivant, holding her father's hand. "'Think of Simeon Goldberg, a good friend, a man not so careless in observance of the law as we, but still of the reformed faith, and worth—his voice grew unconsciously reverential—five hundred thousand pounds, if he's worth a penny.' The girl's eyes flashed for a second, then grew again contemptuous. "'It's an absolute impossibility.' You must let this drop, Papa. We don't live in the Middle Ages when you could put me on bread and water and lock me up until I consented, or in patriarchal times when you could curse me for disobeying you. So why discuss the matter further? I shall marry in my own good time. I am not the sort that old maids are made of. He released her hand and turned towards the table. Very well, he said, taking up the pen. I will not force you, but remember that your choice among our people is limited. I might choose outside them, she said, pausing in her lazy walk towards the door. Israel Hart started round in the chair and bent his brows upon her. She tried, saucily, to meet his eyes, but hers sank abashed. My daughter, he said sternly, let me never hear you say such a thing again, even in jest. Remember, you are a Jewess. She stood for a moment or two, twitching her fingers, longing to retort but she did not dare. It was only when she found herself outside his door that he gave vent to the passionate outburst. Would to God the accursed race had perished with the other ten tribes! She went upstairs to her bedroom, with anger and foreboding at her heart, and put on hat and jacket, casting mere mechanical glances at the mirror for the sake of adjustment. Six months before, her dressing to meet Hugh had been a matter of sweet and import and coquetry. She looked, however, very pretty in her dark blue costume, with dainty ruffle at her throat, when she met him three-quarters of an hour later in Kensington Gardens. He was walking moodily up and down the broad walk near their appointed meeting-place, but when he caught sight of her he quickened his step. "'I'm sorry I'm late,' she said, with some petulance, "'but when you will make me take these long journeys—' "'It is not my fault, dear,' he said casually. I told you I was lunching at Lancaster Gate and was going to put in a call nearby before dinner. It was my only hour. Oh, well, never mind. I'm here now. It was Papa who kept me. I've been discussing matrimony with him. In the abstract, or 
Both. It began with the all-too-concrete Goldberg. Refusing him, I am to marry an abstract Jew, or the curse of Abraham will fall upon me. Be more precise, if you don't mind, he said seriously. She gave him a detailed account of the conversation, picturesquely satiric. Hugh listened sombrely, holding his stick with both hands behind his back, as they strode slowly down among the fallen leaves. "'So he'll never consent,' she concluded. "'I suppose we'll have to wait until, well, the ordinary way of nature. He's an old man.' "'We mustn't think of that, my child,' said Hugh, with some gentleness. "'I don't see why not. It will solve all our difficulties.' "'What a mixture of flint and flesh you are, Minna,' he said, regarding her curiously. "'I never pretend to love where I don't,' she replied. "'And when people thwart me, I begin to dislike.' They walked on a little, in silence, turned and retraced their steps. The dusk began to gather round them, and the autumn mist to hang upon the thinning branches. Minna shivered a little, and took his arm. "'Why don't you say something kind to me, Hugh, dear?' she said plaintively. He stooped and kissed her, and they went on their way less far apart than before. Presently she asked him where he was going to dine. "'At the Merriam's.' "'I wish to goodness you wouldn't!' she exclaimed petulantly. "'My dear girl, because I am secretly married to you, I am not going to give up my dearest and oldest friends.' "'I hate them. You know I do.' "'It's a pity, my dear, but it can't be helped.' "'And haven't we discussed this rather too often lately?' "'You do very little to please me,' she said. "'I would do anything in reason.' "'If you love me, you would not think of reason.' "'Look here, Menna,' said Hugh, losing patience. "'What do you want? Of course I love you. But as things are, I must lead my own life. If you were always with me, there would be modifications, naturally. I am getting as tired of this half-and-half -half state as you are.' I was going soon to approach your father on the subject, but what you have told me this afternoon has somewhat disturbed my plans. We must wait a little longer. But in the meantime—'I don't mind waiting at all,' she interrupted. "'It isn't that.' "'Well, what is it, dear, that I can do for you?' "'I see so little of you, and you don't seem to care. If you go on like this, I feel I shall grow to dislike you. And you are my husband. And, oh, darling, I want you so sometimes.' All the seductive richness in her voice toned the last appeal. Hugh's conscience pricked him. He had of late felt himself drifting far from her, and had made no efforts to reapproach. Now, however, the pathetic and languorous appeal caused him to bend his head very tenderly. "'Tell me what to do, sweetheart.' "'Ah, you know,' she murmured. "'The window.' She pressed his arm tightly. "'I should go to sleep so happy.' So he promised, and the girl's face brightened. Soon afterwards they parted. Minna drove homewards in a cab, kissing her hand to him as it moved off, and Hugh walked along towards Lancaster Gate, deep in troubled thought. It was an ill-starred marriage. Already he regretted his folly and his weakness. If they had shared the same home, living a common life, he felt that he could have maintained a constantly tender attitude towards her, by means of a passive acceptance of his lot. But in the present circumstances the nature of things demanded of him active demonstration. The necessary intriguing was repugnant to him. To visit his wife like a thief in the night was an act from which he shrank as from something mean and degrading. 
a passionate love would have swept away pettier feelings. It is only such a love that laughs at locksmiths. A waning passion bestows on them irritable curses. The prospect of entering the Lindens late at night, by a window which Minna secretly unlatched, and creeping thief-wise up the stairs to her apartments, had lost its edge of romance. He had promised, however, and it became a disagreeable duty. It damped his spirits for the evening. Even Irene could not cheer him. Conversation degenerated into futile bar-gossip between Gerard and himself, which they protracted sleepily till a late hour. When at last he found himself with Minna, who had taken infinite pains to make her beauty as attractive as possible, she reopened, with feminine inconsistency, the chapter of the Merriams, and sent him away after a little, angry and disheartened. His unqualified refusal to allow his regard for her to affect his relations with his friends gradually magnified itself, through the girl's jealousy, into a great wrong. Once, at the turn of a road, she met him with them face to face. The afterglow of laughter was in Irene's eyes. Minna acknowledged their salute with sullen stiffness, and when Hugh fell back a pace and turned to her with outstretched hand, she dismissed him angrily. Her face wore the hardened expression he had seen on it once before. Then he had attributed it to strength, but now it seemed to reveal only sulky ill-breeding. A phrase defining her flashed through his mind. She looked common. "'What a peculiarly disagreeable young woman,' said Gerard, as he rejoined his friends. Hugh winced. Although not ill-pleased to see that Gerard had no suspicions of the relations between himself and Minna, the outspoken judgment on his wife was anything but gratifying. He struggled, however, to atone by gentleness for his grievous fault in marrying her. But it was a futile task to try to convince a jealous, untrained girl who reasoned from her appetites and argued from her passions. At last he gave it up with a helpless gesture of impatience. "'It seems beyond your nature to comprehend the bond between the Merriams and myself,' he said one day. She laughed scornfully. "'It would appeal to the meanest understanding. A man and his wife and the tertium quid.' It was the first time she had made such an insinuation. A second passed before he could quite realise the scope of her words. Then the anger blazed in his eyes, and the girl shrank back, frightened. "'If you ever say such a silly and wicked thing again,' he said, "'I will not speak to you again as long as I live.' He left her, there and then, in the middle of the road, and returned homewards with angry strides. The first available post brought him a repentant letter. A semblance of harmony was re-established. Thenceforward Minna kept silence concerning Irene, but she nonetheless harboured a bitter resentment against her husband. The habit of brooding over grievances grew into a disastrous occupation. They rarely spent a non-recriminative hour. The issue of disputes, no longer Irene, became in turns his work, his social engagements, his neglect, his aloofness, even his gentile birth and inherited instincts. And so the dreary months wore on. At last certain horrible fears that had been vaguely haunting the girl's ignorance developed into certainties. The prospect of maternity was inexpressibly repugnant to her idle, sensuous nature. The thought became a nightmare. So bitterly did she resent Hugh's attitude towards her that she shrank from telling him. 
At last she made up her mind, wrote to him asking for an interview at his chambers. He replied that he would be engaged in court at the time she mentioned, and regretted that he could not see her until the next day. Quite an affectionate and courteous letter from a busy and unsuspecting man, but it sent her into an unreasoning passion of anger. She tore the letter into tiny fragments, ordered her boxes to be packed, and went off forthwith to Brighton. It was only a fortnight afterwards that Hugh received a letter from Anna Cassaba telling him of an accident, illness, and a premature end of troubles. In consternation he took the first train down. Minna refused to see him. Old Anna was in great distress. Hugh's handsome face and proud bearing had won her heart. To act the stern janitress taxed all her love for her darling. She sought to alleviate his disappointment, suggested that women often had strange, unaccountable fancies and aversions. Better to leave the poor child alone for the present. When she recovered, she would be her own gay self again. Forget the irrational dislike she had conceived for him, love him with all her old love, and there would yet be a bonny babe of theirs for old Anna to dandle on her knees before she died. The man's pity and tenderness were wonderfully quickened. If she had willed, he would have folded her in his arms and made her sick-bed sweet. He scribbled a hasty line. "'Darling, I am grieved to the heart. Your husband loves you, dear, with a fresher love. Let me tell you so, and tell you to get well, when all things will be different and dear again.' The old woman took the note to Minna. He crept up to the bedroom door, listened, heard the faint rustle of the paper in her hands, and then came her voice, irritable and peevish. "'Tell him to go away and let me be.' So he returned to London, heavy-hearted, with a gnawing sense of having ruined the girl's life. The weeks went past. Early in the new year, Minna returned to her father's house, looking ill and worn. Israel noticed the change, grew solicitous as to her well-being. Why had she not told him she'd been poorly at Brighton? He would have given her all the care and nursing that money could provide. His kind words caused her a faint stirring of emotion, an adumbration of a tenderness that might have been. And as the loneliness and aimlessness of her life grew more oppressive, an instinct of self-preservation drew her nearer to his side. The horror of her illness still clung to her. It was a kind of macabre dance over her dead passion. Yet she was conscious of wrong done to Hugh, and received him kindly when he came to see her one afternoon, shortly after her return. He was anxious to make reparation. "'We are bound together for the rest of our lives, dear,' he said. "'Perhaps it was a mistake to begin with, and certainly the secrecy has been a terrible blunder. Let us brave it all out now and be done with it and start life afresh.' "'Do you think we can ever be happy together?' "'My dear little girl, I have wronged you, but I will try to make amends. I have a certain position in society. Even if you don't love me, your life will be brighter than it is now.' She leaned back in one of her indolent attitudes. "'Perhaps not now. I am afraid of my father. He might curse me, and that would be annoying.' Hugh paused, somewhat baffled at this new idea. "'They will be merely words of anger,' he replied. "'It will not be long-lived.' But she shook her head. It was better to wait. Perhaps she might gradually influence him, 
and then all would be smooth sailing. Hugh saw an element of reason in her proposal, and for a time returned to his briefs. For his own sake he was not loath to postpone the announcement. The debt to Israel weighed heavily upon his conscience. But as long as his marriage remained a secret, and as long as his uncle lived, he could spare himself the galling reproach of trickery. Meanwhile, his practice was showing signs of improvement. A brilliant cast might land him at a bound into affluence, and then he could raise the money, cry quits with the urbane and gentle-mannered Shylock on the score of his ducats, and brave his reproaches on the score of his daughter. Thus doth hope spring eternal in the human breast. But unforeseen action on the part of old Anna Cassaba suddenly hastened events. She let her house in Brighton for an indefinite period, and announced her return to Smyrna. A lawsuit had arisen over some property which Minna's Syrian mother had bequeathed to the old nurse, and which formed the chief source of her comfortable income. Anna was summoned to look after her interests. The nostalgia of her native East, which she had not visited for over twenty years, grew strong upon her. She could not tell how long she might be absent from England. Minna contemplated her departure with sinking heart. Anna was the saving spar to which she clung. Sheltering her temporarily in her own dressing-room at the Lindens, Minna wept in her arms and implored a speedy return. The old nurse cried too, and spoke of death, as old folks will, and comforted her in such wise that at last the girl grew desperate in her anticipated desolation. The result was a sudden determination that Hugh should speak. "'I've come to the end of my tether,' she said to him. "'Anything would be better than this. I'll get Papa to ask you to dinner. He likes you, and has been inquiring why you come so seldom now.' In the course of a day or two he received, and accepted, an invitation for the following Monday. He felt happier. The die was cast. If Hart called him a scamp for thus tricking him out of five thousand pounds, he would bear it as an atoning humiliation for Minna's sake. He prepared to go through the ordeal with an air of disdain. But in his category of scorn, he himself was included. End of chapter 6 What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.